From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. Very few things in finance end well when they stay outside of our public policy frameworks. Public policy frameworks of financial stability, public policy frameworks in terms of protecting against money laundering, tax compliance, and yes, investor protection. That's Gary Gensler. He has served as the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission since April. Gensler has a long history of public service, including stints as the chair of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission and as an aide to Senator Paul Sarbanes. Before heading the SEC, Gensler was a professor of global economics and management at MIT, where he taught a class on blockchain technology. Since taking office at the SEC, Gensler has been making headlines, especially when it comes to cryptocurrency, calling it the Wild West and pledging to use the SEC's regulatory authority to its fullest extent. I spoke with Gensler on Monday at the Code Conference hosted by Kara Swisher and Vox Media in Los Angeles. Our conversation covered the hotly debated issues around regulating cryptocurrencies, the future of SPACs, and the importance of SEC initiatives to combat the climate crisis. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. So as you know, folks, this week, I interviewed Gary Gensler, the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission, at a conference out in L.A. And it occurs to me that over the years, I've gotten a lot of questions about the SEC, about securities fraud, about the relationship between the SEC and U.S. attorney's offices. How are their jurisdictions different? How do you work together? And I thought as context to the interview with Gary Gensler, I would answer some of those questions I've gotten over the years. So first, as a matter of clarification, lots of lay people don't fully understand the distinction between the powers of a prosecutor's office versus the powers of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Now, both entities, both agencies have a lot of authority and power to police the markets and to protect investors and to hold miscreants accountable, but they're different. Most importantly, the SEC is an independent civil regulatory agency, meaning it has no criminal powers whatsoever. I would see from time to time somebody referring to the SEC arresting someone. The SEC has no power of arrest, The SEC does not have cuffs. The SEC sends no one to prison. There are also other powers that the SEC doesn't have as a civil regulatory agency. The SEC does not do search warrants, where, of course, they have the ability to get documents, compel documents, and do inspections, but they can't do what, you know, sometimes in the press, they refer to as a raid. They also can't do wiretaps. They're not authorized to wiretap people's phones. And they also can't plant bugs in the boardrooms at companies. All of those things can be done with proper authorization and cause shown and a judge to sign off by criminal prosecutors like those in U.S. attorney's offices around the country. People also ask the question, well, then how does a U.S. attorney's office like my old office, SDNY, work with the SEC? Well, one thing that's important to remember is, again, they are separate agencies, they have separate missions, they have separate mandates, and they have separate powers and authorities. And so we always say that we work in parallel with the SEC when we have the same targets in mind, some of whom would be criminal and some of whom would be civil. In fact, it can cause a significant legal issue if it appears that the SEC, in some kind of collusion with the U.S. Attorney's Office, was a stalking horse for criminal prosecutors. So criminal prosecutors don't sort of lurk in the background, try to get the SEC at the prosecutor's direction to get information based on their inspection powers so that a criminal case can be built. 
Each agency works separately, but can work in parallel to try to get the evidence they need to bring the enforcement actions that are appropriate for them. And so people will ask, well, how does a case come to you? How does a case of securities fraud, whether it's insider trading or accounting fraud or something else, come to your office, SDNY, versus the SEC? Well, it happens in both directions. Often it's the case that SEC staff are taking a look at some restatement of financials at a company, and they see conduct that looks like it's so egregious and so significant and so willful and intentional that maybe it rises to the level of criminal conduct as well, and they'll make a referral. In fact, I was often talking to the various enforcement directors at the SEC saying, look, if you find potential criminality someplace, you have an option of going to many different U.S. attorney's offices in terms of your referrals. Please bring them to SDNY because I think and still think we do have particular expertise there because the stock markets, the major ones in the country, sit in our district in lower Manhattan. There are other times, though, where it's the U.S. Attorney's Office that comes across information of securities fraud and tells the SEC. So we might be looking at things of a criminal nature with respect to a particular defendant that we picked up. And let's say that person begins to cooperate and talks about criminal securities fraud on the part of colleagues of theirs at their company. We might think there's a good reason for the SEC to have an independent look at that as well. So it works in both directions. If you read the financial press, you'll often see, and this was, I think, more true in the past than it is at this moment, that there would be a joint announcement of arrests by the Department of Justice and an enforcement action against those same people by the SEC. That's not required. It doesn't have to be done that way. It was often the case that their investigation, our investigation, will culminate you know, at around the same time, and it made sense for the SEC to take its civil action at the same time we took a criminal action, but sometimes it wasn't the case. In the very notable matter of the insider trading case against Roger Gupta, who was a member of the board of directors of Goldman Sachs, who we prosecuted some years ago, the SEC announced a securities fraud case of a civil nature against Roger Gupta. We didn't yet have all the evidence that we needed, so we took more time, and some months later, we brought a criminal charge. The other thing to remember is not just the, the difference in the authorities that the SEC has versus the DOJ, there's also a difference in the burden of proof to make a civil case versus making a criminal case. As a reminder, to convict someone in a criminal case, you have to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. For a civil case, and all SEC cases are civil, as I said, you have to prove liability by a mere preponderance of the evidence, meaning essentially more likely than not to be true. That's a much easier burden to bear. You may remember some years ago, there's a lot of talk about how the SDNY, in connection with securities cases involving insider trading, use wiretaps. And people sometimes say, well, why did that happen? Why did you use wiretaps? Was that helpful? The first thing I always say is it was not my innovation. It was the innovation of my predecessors. Uh, Mike Garcia was the U.S. attorney when I inherited all these wiretaps in the various cases involving Galleon Group, Raj Raj Rutnam, and others, whose names you might remember from a few years ago. And as I always say, it's kind of odd that wiretaps had not ever been used before, to our knowledge, because the act of insider trading, the illegal conduct of insider trading, involves essentially, as one of its elements, an act of communication. It's giving someone a tip about material non-public information. To do that, to accomplish the crime, there has to be some communication. Often that communication happens on the telephone. It's hard to get up on a wire. You have to give a lot of proof, probable cause, to a judge. There are lots of layers of internal review. But once you do that, and you can show that other phones or communication devices are being used to perpetuate a fraud, securities fraud scheme, like insider trading, you can move from phone to phone, each time getting judicial authorization, and then you have sometimes very, very compelling proof that jurors can hear with their own ears. That's some basic background and how the SEC and DOJ work together and in parallel, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. 
You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. My guest this week is Gary Gensler. He's the chair of the Securities and Exchange Commission and an expert in financial markets and cryptocurrency. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Gensler. Great to be with you, Preet. Thanks for joining us, even though remotely we'll try to make this as personal as possible. If I could, let me start with it with a very pragmatic question that I think you can easily answer. What are some stocks that you recommend I should buy? <laughs> I, I would suggest that you wouldn't want me to go into any individual names, but I hope that they're duly registered if they're okay. here in the U.S. and that they're compliant right. with the probably, U.S. laws. How's probably, that, Preet? That's fine, but unsatisfactory. Um, and if I asked you stocks I should short, you might know that better. Yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Straight guy. So as you may understand, uh, this conference, the Code Conference, involves a lot of folks who are interested in tech, who are involved in the business of tech, who rely on tech. And, and you said something interesting that I want to probe a little bit sort of as a foundational matter. You have said that you may have views on certain policies, but that you are technology neutral. And I guess I, I take that to mean you're not neutral about the fact of technology, but with respect to a particular technology, blockchain or otherwise, that your view as a regulator is that you are and should be technology neutral. My first question is, what does that mean? And the second question is, why do you feel that that's the proper posture for a regulator to be technology neutral? I think, great question. Look, I, I was honored to be a professor up at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So, I mean, I'm not, in a sense, as an individual in my private capacity, uh, technology neutral, but in my public capacity, I am. I, I was honored to study and do research and teach at the intersection of technology and finance. And I think technology since antiquity has been intertwined in finance, but I also think that it helps uh, promote inclusion, uh, lowers costs, can benefit competition, promote transparency. But as a regulator, I think the role is to be technology neutral and whether it's one technology or another, to provide the, um, the rules of the road that those technologies can compete. And the business models are left to the private sector, so to speak, and the public sector is there to protect against fraud and abuses. And of course, our three-part mission, investor protection on one hand, capital formation on the other, and then what's in the middle, fair, orderly, and efficient markets. And so if we can promote that, I'm technology neutral. You said something interesting in your answer, um, and I appreciate the candor. You said that as a person, as a private person, you're not technology neutral. And in preparing for this discussion, I talked to lots of folks on the law enforcement side, civil and criminal, and people on the industry side. And, and some of them said to me, that statement of technology neutrality, they don't believe it. Um, what do you say to folks who think 
based on your teachings and your studies, you have formed an opinion of certain technologies that results in cryptocurrency that we'll get to in a moment, and these are other people's words, there's a pretense at neutrality that's not really genuine. Do you want to address that? Well, they might not know me well enough. That's all. I mean, I, I spent three and a half years, uh, again, trying to teach and research at the intersection at the really, truly, I think, the greatest technology and science university in the world. So, sorry to brag about that a little bit. But I think that in this role, I think it is appropriate to be technology neutral. Look, right now, there's things going on in the initial public offering space where you can raise capital, not just in traditional forms, traditional IPOs, but also with special purpose acquisition corporations. That sort of debate, and you can also do it a third way, direct listing. That's Those are different technologies. I'm technology neutral in that context too, but I'm not technology about investor disclosure and whether we have enough disclosure in the the SPAC, the approach, and whether we have sort of a level playing field amongst these different forms of capital formation. So it's genuine. I understand that some who would like to say, look, I I would like to um, uh, to just be um, outside of the public policy perimeter, they would say, that guy's not neutral. But to that, I would say, you're right. I'm not neutral about public policy. I think that our legislative body, the Congress, adopts laws. You, when you were U.S. attorney in the Southern District, you were a cop on the beat. You you helped enforce those laws in a similar way, in a civil law enforcement way. I'm a cop on the beat with 4,400 other people, cops on the beat, to enforce the laws that Congress put in place, and that we're not neutral about. Okay. Um, so, so let's get to that issue that I mentioned in the introduction, the issue of, of cryptocurrency. And a lot of people don't know what to make of you. You point out in every conversation that you have publicly, and you have in this one, that you taught at MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. You're probably, in fact, almost certainly, the most fluent on some of these technology issues of any former chair of the SEC, which on one hand gives you, you know, knowledge, fluency. On the other hand, may give you an opinion uh, and you have said things that are that sound open-minded towards uh, crypto assets. You've also said things that some people take as ominous about crypto assets. And I, I want to read to you one comment and see if, if you have a reaction. And that's uh, Ray Dalio founded a very small hedge fund known as Bridgewater. Yeah, I, I've heard of Ray. Yeah, outspoken guy. He had this to say 12 days ago. And he's speaking about Bitcoin and about regulators, namely you. And he said, quote, at the end of the day, if it, Bitcoin, is very successful, they, that means you, they will kill it. And I think they will kill it because they have ways of killing it. And so my question is, is he right? Do you in fact have ways of killing it? And will you therefore kill it because you have those ways? Look, Preet, um, I, I really mean this when I say I'm technology neutral. I can I can go along with you. I think Satoshi Nakamoto, whomever, whomever she or he was or they, we still don't know, came up with some real innovations. And um, if you think about it, we've had gold for 10,000 years. Gold is a speculative store of value. And it's, it's got a long narrative. Uh, Bitcoin, Satoshi Nakamoto came along and said, well, you can do a speculative store value a different way. Now, Nakamoto-san's paper talked about it being electronic money or in a currency. But in essence, what has happened over these 11 years, it's a speculative store of value, a digital speculative store of value. If people want to invest in that, I, I really am. I know that you might not believe it. Ray might not believe it. Neutral about that. But I am not neutral about the investor protection around that. And that's the public policy that we, we're supposed to put in place. Right. And, and obviously, he stated it in an extreme way. And I asked the question in a kind of extreme way. You can be technology neutral, but engage in regulatory practice that has the effect of hurting a particular industry in Ray Dalio's words, possibly killing a particular currency or not. And I guess before we get to some of the details, 
uh, about what you might be planning and thinking, do people like Ray and others have something to worry about with respect to how you might regulate or some other agencies like the CFTC might regulate cryptocurrency such that it's an existential threat to that business? Can you give some assurance that it won't be? Well, I can't speak for others in the official sector around the globe. There's a couple hundred countries, and we've even seen recent actions by some other countries in this space. But let me just sort of make a thought exercise. When when the automobile came along, would it have been good for Detroit if somebody in, I'd say, the 19-teens didn't come up that we might have traffic lights, stop signs, speed limits, and even a cop on the beat? It actually would not have been good for Detroit. Detroit would not have sold as many cars. Or if I could have a little bit more fun, if it was uh, if we were all watching football or basketball with no ref and no rules. I mean, for a game or two or maybe three games, it would be really exciting and interesting. But afterwards, it wouldn't be. And so that's our role. Those are great analogies. And I take from that those analogies, given that you've had a couple of, of chances to respond to the, you know, you might say it's a, it's a silly and extreme comment from Ray Dalio, that the examples you're using are, I think most people in this room would agree, rational, reasonably based regulations to protect people inside and outside of the industry, but don't pose an existential threat. So can I take from your answers and your analogizing that there is no existential threat to crypto? Look, from this guy, I can, I can speak I'm just talking to you. It's just you and me. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and like 400 people in the room there and thousands of people. You've got a good podcast. I, 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 I do. And you'll be on it this yeah. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is that if, if somebody like me is technology neutral, it doesn't mean that five or 6,000 cryptocurrencies are going to persist. And I've said this publicly, the history of private monies is that private monies tend not to persist, right? We have 180 fiat currencies around the globe, just 180. So think about it. Is it likely that five or 6,000, in essence, private forms of, I mean, there are many of them. Many of them are securities, but they're trying to compete with money. Right. Some things will persist and some things won't. But will that be because of the market, which seems to be what you're saying, or will that be because of you? I think it's it's. Do they want to come inside a consumer and investor protection remit? Do they want to comply with any money laundering laws, tax compliance, and the like? And so that's up to the industry. And then those of us in the official sector have a responsibility to the American public and those in other countries to other publics to ensure for those public policy goals. Okay, so, so further to that, the idea of people in that industry coming in to a regulatory framework seems to turn on a simple question that is um, in the air everywhere. Uh, people are waiting with bated breath on the answer to the question, which is some version of our cryptocurrencies, uh, crypto assets, digital coins, etc., whatever you want to call them, are they in fact securities within the meaning of the securities laws of the United States of America? And there's a lot riding on that because some people, if they have guessed incorrectly about that, are engaging in unlawful activity uh, per the SEC, although it hasn't said so yet in many instances, and they don't like that, it might prevent people from coming into the business. And, and you have said on multiple occasions, first at your confirmation hearing, you said it's very important for the SEC uh, to give guidance and give clarity. And I know that you believe that. And you have said multiple times, as I mentioned in the intro, that the laws about this, the simple question, you know, it seems very complicated, uh, but it's easily presented the question, is this or that asset, uh, digital coin, a security or not? You say it's clear, and I have great respect for the agency and for you, but there's a lot of other folks on the other side of the coin, so to speak. Even within the SEC, there are commissioners. There is famously, as is being litigated about, uh, a former division head within the SEC who said at a conference, not unlike this one, not that long ago, that garden variety cryptocurrency is not a security within the securities laws. There are smart people out there in the industry who I respect. There are former SEC division heads who represent those people. So there's a lot of they're folks- They're fee, they're getting paid, they've got- their... You're getting, I believe you're getting paid too. Uh, yeah, but my client's the American public ultimately. Their client is somebody who's a commercial enterprise with all respect. 
their client is somebody who's got a commercial enterprise, right. and they'd be better to come in and comply with the law. So maybe you're answering the question that, that I was framing. And the question is, given how you talk about how the law with respect to what is or is not a security is clear, these other people think it's not clear. I'm trying to understand why that divide exists. Maybe you've answered it, but my question was going to be, are they, are they dumb? Are they deluded? Are they disingenuous? Or do they just have bad lawyers? What do you make of the gulf between your view of clarity as to what is an, a security and their view of the lack of clarity? Look, a little bit of history. In 1933 and 34, when the various secure, the, the, the first two securities laws were passed, Congress included a long list in defining what a security is. And they've even added to it a couple of times. And Thurgood Marshall, you know the history, Preet, in, in 1990, in a famous case, said that Congress painted with a broad brush. And the reason was, in his words, was to address fraud. And that broad brush has been interpreted by the Supreme Court multiple times. And those watching and listening know, if you give somebody money and you're relying on that somebody, that collective enterprise, in anticipation of profits, that comes under some Supreme Court uh, cases around an investment contract. And there's other other things. The word note, N-O-T-E, is in the definition. It's, in fact, like the first word of a long list and so forth. Right. But, but one so Supreme Jay Court justice. Clayton, one of my predecessors said it. So it crosses party lines in, in February of 2018. He hadn't really seen tokens that weren't meeting those tests, that weren't securities. It was very few of them. Um, so I don't know. I think that uh, over the 90 years, do you want to hear some of the things that have been in? Florida orange groves, that was the Howie test yep. that went whiskey caskets, literally whiskey caskets. So there's a lot of stuff. So, 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 farms. so why not say, and that's fine. I mean, some people have said, just we just want to kind of know if that's true. And, and the examples you're giving are orange groves and other things that seem far-fetched to the sort of normal platonic ideal of security. Well, not, not with yeah. all respect, not so, it's just, it's a simple sort of straightforward concept. Do you pre-raise money from somebody and they're anticipating profits based upon your efforts or the collection, you know, some other's efforts? That's, that's, that's kind of that collective enterprise anticipation of profit. Right. I don't know. No, but, that, it, but that's, to- what I'm saying is, that seems a, a fair, you know, on one hand, evaluation of the law, but then you don't seem to go the next step, which is to say, look, uh, this is what the law says. I think it's very clear. And what it means when I say it's very clear is that all this stuff the crypto people are doing, there may be some exceptions among the five or 6,000 folks who are doing this, but pretty much I can guarantee you if and when, and we'll get to the question of timing, if and when my fines folks who also understand the clarity of the law get to looking at your coin, it's going to be a security. So you better register. And I've never heard you say quite that, but it sounds like that's what you want to say. Look, I, I've said it I've said it publicly, and it's really to the platforms. There are uh, probably a couple hundred or more platforms that are trading tokens, that are lending tokens, that are facilitating individuals staking tokens. And these platforms usually have dozens, if not hundreds, and in some cases, thousands of tokens on them. Just probability weighted, it's it's pretty unlikely that there's no securities if you've got you know, a couple hundred tokens. But the other way of saying it, and those, and I'll, and I'll skip. those, those platforms ought to come in and, and seek to register. And if there's parts of it that doesn't work out, sort it through with the SEC. And, and if you're offering a lending product, that's offering somebody a return. I don't know. It, it, you know, everything's about facts and circumstances and the law, each individual's circumstance. But I think there's a lot of clarity in the law. So you spoke about lending in this space. And I'm sure people have brought this to your attention. Uh, this person is not here, to my knowledge. But the CEO of Coinbase... Brian Armstrong had some strong things to say about the SEC, uh, called the conduct of the SEC in this area, I think, sketchy, sketchy behavior. Thought about getting into the lending uh, space on cryptocurrency. Said in an extended series of tweets, 
that they were told no, um, that they were given no explanation. They asked to come in. The SEC refused to meet with them. And then he, he lobbed a phrase that I know you will not like, but I want to give you an opportunity to respond to that particular complaint and the generalized view that people can't come in. He said, he said, he said, not my words. He said, you, the SEC, uh, are regulating by litigation. What do you say to that? Um, I'm not going to comment on any one particular uh, uh, circumstance or a particular investigation. You probably know that pretty well from the time you were- I gave that answer many times, but, but I have to ask. I got it. I got it. I just wanted to let you see how it felt to get the answer. <laughs> feels feels fine. I'm I'm answer neutral. Okay. Good. <laughs> but did you want? So let me ask the general question: Is it the, when you say, and I, and I've heard you say this on multiple occasions? Come in. Let's have a conversation. Are the, is the door to the SEC building open to all cryptocurrency comers who want to get some guidance? Well, if it's the door, they've got to be vaccinated and things like that. But right now, we're in a very difficult time in the pandemic. Right. But if you're talking about is the Zoom doors, door open? Yes. yes. Virtual doors, yes. Right. So, so when okay, how, how are you thinking about prioritizing which companies you're looking at? Uh, or are you looking at them all at the same time? Like I, I say it, there's, there's trading venues and lending venues where they, they, they coalesce around these and they have not just dozens, but hundreds and sometimes thousands of tokens on them. And, and as I said recently, this is not going to end well if it stays outside the regulatory space. I might be wrong. If I'm wrong, I'll, I'll I'll be glad to come back. You might not invite me, you know, in a number of years after, uh, you know. But I, I would say that um, very few things in finance end well when they stay outside of our public policy frameworks. Public policy frameworks of financial stability, public policy frameworks in terms of protecting against money laundering, tax compliance, and yes, investor protection. And to think that a field that's grown tenfold in the last 18 months, and I don't mean just tenfold in asset value, but in terms of, in terms of the, the lending, the underlying lending and, and so much more, to think that that's going to stay outside of these big public policy frameworks and succeed. If, you, if you're pro-technology, then I think you'd want to also be... Uh, uh, find your way inside of a uh, public policy framework. And regulating these platforms like we regulate MoneyGram in 49 separate states, you know, 49 separate money uh, transmission licenses, rather than either as banks if they're doing lending and they're not registered there either, or if they're offering securities or a product that has securities under our rules, and even my sibling agency, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, a wonderful agency, has enforcement authorities, but not regulatory authorities. I think that um, it's unlikely to persist outside and we'll end, we'll end up with problems and a lot of people will be hurt. My conversation with Gary Gensler continues after this. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. 
Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Let's move on to something else that you mentioned already once uh, that is also something under review by staff you've directed them to take a look at, and that's SPAC, Special uh, Purchase Acquisition Companies. There was a huge one announced earlier today, just some hours ago, uh, backed by Leonardo DiCaprio, famous uh, capitalist, who um, (laughs) involved in the the making of electronic vehicles, valued at $20 billion. Um, Let me ask you a very straightforward question. What are the concerns that you believe you and your staff are most focused on? When do you think you'll have something for the public on what you think uh, investor protection requires in that area? Uh, I've asked staff to uh, serve up some recommendations that we would put out if the commission approves it uh, and recommends it, we put out to what's called notice and comment. So through rule writing, Preet, which you're familiar with and many in the audience probably are familiar with. Um, but I think at the core, at the core, it's not only about the investors, it's also about the capital formation. It's what's going on in the middle. And these uh, shell companies raise money and the promoters are raising money and they say that I've got two years to invest it. And then it's tick, 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 tick. You know, it's waiting two years to invest that money, but they get 20%, generally speaking, 20% of the raised money. Raise a billion, you get 200 million. And there's an incentive system in there to find a merger, even if it's particularly not a great merger, because without closing on a deal in two years, you don't collect your 200 million in that that example that I give you. So there's a lot of costs. There's a lot of uh, additional costs when you finally find a company to merge with, what's called a a DSPAC. And there are a lot of other costs with bringing in new private investors into the system at that point in time. The earlier institutional investors uh, uh, often redeem out and the retail investors are holding a lot of the uh, dilution, a lot of the costs. But also the companies that are thinking about going public, those companies in the audience there maybe that are thinking about going public, there's an awful lot of costs. So what we're looking at is greater transparency and, and also looking at some of the conflicts in this. Can you ask a more sort of general question about investor protection? Uh, there are a lot of investments that in the name of investor protection, uh, we don't allow people to participate in unless they're qualified or accredited investors, right? Hedge funds, IPOs, uh, things like that. And I get it. And a lot of people understand that. They're, you know, they're more vocal folks saying that on the other side of the coin, those are great opportunities uh, to make a lot of money that are not available to people of lesser means, even if they might happen to pass some other test of sophistication. And some folks think that in the name of protection, there's really paternalism, and a lot of average investors are not able to compete with the rich who, by virtue of their riches, are the only ones able to get richer. How do you think about that balance between making sure there are opportunities for average investors but also making sure that they don't get ripped off. Look, I I think that we've got both vibrant public markets and vibrant private markets, uh, venture capital uh, and and other markets, uh, private equity and the like. But I think that basic bargain that Franklin Delano Roosevelt cut with Congress back in 33 and 34 and over and over again was investors get to decide, but they have to get full and fair disclosure. And the challenge in what you're suggesting is, and what others may be suggesting and you're quoting, is our investors, the broad public, the working families uh, in America or the retirees in America trying to invest and save for a better future, are they getting that full and fair disclosure? I think the capital markets work well in the remit, these 90 years, uh, FDR's innovation from the 30s. 
But there may be some that basically want to say, no, let's not have that. But I think that's a good uh, remit. There's something else under review. I can't wait till all these things come to light. Then we can talk again. But you have asked your staff, I believe also, to take a look at what kinds of mandatory disclosures to require from companies with respect to their environmental impact. Carbon footprint and everything else, and there's lots of complicated things that I know go along with that, and I, and I applaud that, and I think it's very important. My question is, to the extent that now becomes a requirement of disclosure to the formidable SEC, is there any worry along the lines of some type of moral hazards so that a company might be prepared to do more, but they will now declare and represent and predict less and do less to lower the likelihood that they get charged with a false representation and securities fraud in the future? Or is that a silly concern? I'm hopeful that we put something out to public comment. I've asked staff to, to serve something up. It's, it's actually a little narrower than you said, but it's about climate risk disclosure. And we now have investors around the globe asking for such uh, disclosures and hundreds of companies, if not thousands of companies are making some disclosures. Our role at the SEC is to try to bring some consistency to that, some comparability, and yes, decision useful. And so to bring that consistency, comparability, decision usefulness, we'll put something out to public comment. We'll see what investors really say is useful. There's a balancing. I understand what you're saying. There's a balancing. But I think that uh, the time is right for us to, to weigh in and get the public comment. And the economic analysis will be really important as to what investors really, uh, what, what's decision useful, whether it's uh, greenhouse gas emissions and, and uh, what, what nature of metrics, quantitative and qualitative disclosures. Are, are you getting, just last question on that, are you getting uh, informal pushback, indirect pushback from certain quarters right now on what you're even thinking about? Well, people come in all the time virtually. And uh, our, my my fellow commissioners and I meet with a lot of people. But I would say that we put out for public comment, more precisely, my, my predecessor in this job, uh, uh, then acting chair, Lee Allison, put something out to public comment and the and a, a significant majority was was a thumbs up saying this would be helpful if we brought some consistency and comparability to this space. I want to ask you about a, a practice of not just the ACC but many public law offices that undertake enforcement actions, um, and it's near and dear to my heart because I had a particular view about this when I was the U.S. Attorney. So I believe the SEC has a noble function, and when it chooses to use its resources and energies. To bring an enforcement action, they do so in good faith, and the publics must know and understand they do it in good faith. And sometimes those cases are withdrawn, but most of the time, uh, and sometimes it goes to trial, but most of the time it ends up in some resolution. And much of the time in connection with the resolution in which the enforcement action was brought in good faith and some remedy is agreed to, meaning a penalty, return of uh, you know, disgorgement, uh, making some party whole, or some other uh, you know, barring activity, such that it seems that the SEC did the right and righteous thing and the company is paying some price. But in many, many cases still, that defendant, that company, who has been, had an action enforced against them, is permitted to settle on the, uh, the language of neither admit nor deny, which seems to a lot of people at odds with what actually happened. And I think over the long run, lessens people's faith in the propriety of the action in the first place, and I understand there are collateral consequences, and I know it's very different, but when I ran the civil division of my office, which also brought enforcement actions of a different nature, we adopted a policy, we changed the policy, in virtually every case we required admissions or we go to trial. Do you have a view on whether or not the SEC should be stricter about the neither admit nor deny policy? I understand the question, and I understand probably how challenging it was when you had to take that on as a U.S. attorney. Um, I think that the finding of facts are really important for the public to understand what what is the reason for this settlement, and you you, you put it in the context of settlements. What what is the reason? I think that finding of facts that it, it really explain uh, it to the public is is 
very important. I think on, on appropriate circumstances, bars, uh, civil, because we're just a civil law enforcement agency, but civil bars from uh, various participation in the uh, uh, in the SEC space are appropriate, in particular undertakings as well um, in this regard. Uh, but as you said, um, you have to really think long and hard because it's also about resource allocation. And, and maybe you felt that you had the resources and that uh, to, to change that whole remit in that regard, uh, it would be a very significant change if we were to take that on and an allocation of resources that would be, would be different. Right. And just so I, I, what I think you're, you're saying on that point is that if you become a stickler about something, the option is to go to trial. That takes resources. The SEC doesn't, you know, I've seen criticism for a long time from various uh, quarters about how few trials the SEC has. I feel like that was true in our civil division also, but I think it's something worth thinking about. Is, is there any area of securities law that you think is unclear? Uh, <laughs> I, I was just wondering whether if, if, you know, when the Washington Post ran that article about a year ago that you and I might be considered for, you know, this job that I'm in. And if, if you know, if you, if you had wanted it and gotten it and all those things, would you have done it? To, what, what would you have done with the thing that you just asked? I, I, I might not. I, I'm, I, frankly, since you're asking and I appreciate the question, I don't think I would say in the same way that, that you and others are that the law is crystal clear. And, and I would... I would be in a better position to ask to answer this next question. I'll, I'll give you another example. No, no, I was asking what you would have done. It, uh, Is there any the area that's unclear? Yeah, I, 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 I think with respect to the area that's unclear, yeah, insider trading law. The cases that we brought when I was the United States Attorney, we brought cases that, as applied to those facts, were very, very, very clear. But we have also proposed, with a number of other people, including former officials of the SEC, that it would be great for both the defense bar and the SEC and companies for there to be a codified statute that sets forth more clearly what the elements of insider trading are. Many people may know and many people may not. There's actually no statute that specifically spells out the elements of insider trading. And part of the reason we wrote in our report, since you brought it up, uh, that we thought that's an important thing is because clarity is important. And I think even though it can be true that the cases you bring under a law that at its margins is unclear, you can bring clear cases, but there's, but, but what people are talking about, and the reason people are concerned, is they're not talking about cases already brought. They're saying that when I'm advising my client now about what the parameters are, should we continue to engage in this business or not, I think they could use some more clarity. Um, I only have time for like another minute or two. Do you have a view as to whether or not members of Congress, would you support a law that would prohibit members of Congress from trading individual stocks. Uh, that's up to Congress. I, I, I'm re- my my job right now is to, uh, along with my fellow commissioners in this remarkable agency. And, and for those of you out there that don't know, I mean, it's just a terrific agency. It is really dedicated. It is um, is to really just try to. In all the things we cover, we cover nearly $100 trillion capital markets. You know the stock markets, but it's treasuries, corporates, uh, asset-backed securities, municipals, et cetera. In every place that we try to use our resources, and they're somewhat limited, but to use our resources to help protect investors, promote capital formation, which probably a lot in that audience want. And then in the middle, by the way, fair, orderly, and efficient markets does tend to mean lower economic rents in the middle, lowering the cost of capital formation. So you all in that audience can raise money more efficiently and investors get a better deal on the other end. We've spent a lot of time on crypto. That $2 trillion asset class is only, and that's a global asset class, is probably less than half percent or, or maybe three quarters of percent of the world's uh, financial assets. So we spent an inordinate time. It's interesting. It's great to be with you. But the, the bulk of the job at the SEC is the blocking and tackling. And we hope promoting more efficient, more orderly, more competitive markets in the middle so companies can raise money more effectively and investors get a better deal. 
Um, I have one last question. People should start coming to the microphones to be able to ask a couple of questions of the chair. Apropos of nothing, is there any behavior by, say, Elon Musk, (laughs) about which you would like to say to him, could you just knock it off? I know you're not going to answer that question, but I, but I, want, I wanted to give you the chance. No, no, the only thing is, is it, he might have fun having an interview with you, that's all. <laughs> no, the, the very excellent Kara Swisher is doing that one. I think that's all we have time for. Gary Gensler, I'm glad it's you there and not me. Thank you, thank you for spending time with us, and most importantly, thank you for your service. Thank you very much. Great, you never know, you might be here someday. My conversation with Gary Gensler continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Gary Gensler. If you like what we do, Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytunedatcafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.